It is amazing to be here this morning and to worship with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, just bear with me. This week was brutal for allergies. If anybody has allergies, uh, it's May. Welcome. Welcome to May. Um, so I might be sniffling. I might be blowing my nose. Hopefully not too much, but uh, just bear with me. Um, before I read, let's just, uh, let's just pray again one more time. God, I just thank you for this opportunity that we can gather together as your church uh, to just read your word together, to find encouragement in your word. Lord, I just pray that you soften our hearts this morning to just receive whatever uh, you want us to receive from you, Lord. I pray that you use me as your vessel, that I get out of the way, that I listen to your spirit working within me um, as I lead through the book of Jude. God, I just pray for strength for my voice, strength for my sinuses as I do this, and I pray that it won't be a distraction, but we can just uh, put our focus and our, 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 just our attention on you for this next um, few minutes together. So once again, we love you, and we thank you for all the grace, love, and mercy we've received at the foot of that cross because of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the book of Jude? It is the second to last book of the Bible, right before the last book, the book of Revelation. As I just prayed, we are in the middle of a series, and Lord willing, next week will be the last, uh, we'll, finish, we'll finish this series on Jude next week. No promises, but possibly. Um, so just as we've been going through Jude, as you're turning there, just a little recap of who Jude is. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the full brother of James, who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament, just a few books before Jude. It was written about 68 to 70 A.D., and it, it runs really parallel with Second Peter. Second Peter, in his letter, he, he says that, hey, there's a warning. There, there are apostates coming who are going to attack the truth, attack the church, attack the name of Christ. And Jude says, they are here. The apostates are here. And this morning, we're going to be using that word apostate as we've been doing through the series. And the easiest way to describe what an apostate is, right? They're a false teacher, but they're people who know who God is. They know the truth of God. They don't care. They reject him, and they want to be the own, their own God of their life, right? So they reject. They know God. They reject him, and they say, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to take as many people with me as I can because it's all about me. And then even in the book of Hebrews, the author goes as far as to say these apostates can be part of the church, they can even be leaders of the church and, and see the signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit gives to the body of believers. They can taste the Holy Spirit and see the Holy Spirit, yet still they choose to re-crucify Jesus Christ on the cross. If it was up to them, they would say, you know what, Jesus, go back on that cross because I don't like you. I don't care about you. I don't need you. So again, these are the, the apostates that are in the church that have infiltrated, as Jude talked about in our first uh, session together. So if you're there, what I want to do is I just want to read each verses, stop, do a quick one-minute recap of where, where we left off and what we talked about when we read these verses, and then we're going to pick up from verses 12 to verses 16 this morning. So let's read together. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So what we did, we, we looked two weeks ago, we stayed in, in those verses, and we l- talked about the context of Jude. We talked about him saying in verse 2 and, and 1 and 2, saying, remember who you are, Christian, remember that you are called by God, you are kept by God, <clears throat> and you are loved by God. And then he pronounces a blessing, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then we find out why Jude is writing this little letter, these, this 25 verses in this letter here. He says, I had every intention to write to you a really happy, encouraging little letter about our, our salvation and the joy of our faith together, right? The common salvation. But then he says, I found it necessary. And in the Greek, that translates to a very extreme, like I felt mandated to. I felt the burden to. And he changes his theme of his message. And he says, uh, he's really saying, to contend for the faith. And he's writing about being on guard, being alert, fighting for the truth. And then in verse 4, he mentions for certain people, and these are the apostates he's calling out, they've crept in what? Unnoticed. They, they are blending in, they're infiltrating. Apostates come as spiritual terrorists. They, they destroy from within. And many times it, it's too late. You, it's hard to see them. And he says they're ungodly, they pervert the grace of our God, and they deny Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And he really talks about in the next verses how they deny Jesus, and it's mainly through their actions, right? Apostates could say all the right things. They could say, yeah, Jesus is Lord, he's great, and not truly believe it, but they can play the part, as Jesus calls them, wolves in sheep's clothing. But Jude says, look at their lives, look at their character, Instead of calling them out by name, he attacks their character and says, because of their fruit or their fruitlessness, as we'll read today, look at who they are. They're apostates. They are not truly in Christ. So that was sort of the encouraging start of the book of Jude. And then last week we looked at um, just a sermon entitled, uh, Judgment is Coming, a nice, a nice encouraging message for a Sunday morning. But we looked at the next couple of verses as, as Jude sort of pronounces judgment over these apostates. So let's read that, verses 5 to 11. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's stop there for a second. So Judas now calling out everybody, everybody in the world, and even everybody who's in the heavenly places who know God, reject God, are going to face judgment. doesn't matter if you're part of God's chosen nation as an Israelite or a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, you know, going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, or even an angel who's fallen and, and apostatized the name of God. There's judgment coming for everyone who is not in Christ. And then what he does in verse 8 is he further calls out these apostates by their actions. So let's read verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, the apostates, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people, the apostates, blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So again, pause there for just a second. Jude's calling out their actions. He's calling them, they're immoral, 
They're insubordinate to God, and they have no reverence or no fear of who God is. And what he does is he uses this weird story of the archangel Michael and the, uh, disputing over the body of Moses with the devil. And I'm not getting into that again. If you want to listen to it, it's on the, on the website from last week. But he uses that to sort of show and compare Michael's reverence to God versus these apostates' irreverence, their, their stupidity, in a sense, and, and how they're acting. And, and really, Jude says they're no better than dumb animals. All they know is their instinct. That you can't reason with them. They're, they're dumb. And then in verse 11, we ended last week by, by Jude saying, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And what he says is these apostates, they choose the way of Cain, selfishness, pride, greed, right? Wanting to be their own God, do their own thing over the way of Christ. They choose Balaam's error over Christ's truth. And they choose the death of Korah, the rebellion and the death of Korah over the life of Christ. And that's sort of where we ended last week. And this morning I just entitled the sermon, Judgment is Still Coming. Because I had to break these, these verses in half. And as I mentioned last week, it's okay, it's good to talk about the bad news. Because it helps us understand fully the good news. And there's a pastor that said this, there's nothing more loving than to tell somebody the truth. Right? And the truth is, if you are not in Christ, if you are not redeemed, if you're not a child of God adopted by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, then you're in trouble. You face judgment. You face the wrath of God. But the good news that we talked about last week, if you are in Christ, there's love, forgiveness, redemption, mercy, uh, repentance, all that at the cross. And we are now children of the light or children of God rather than children of darkness. So this morning, if you look in your bulletin, you should have a, another three-point outline. J like I said last week, Jude really likes the number three, and I like the number three too, so we'll stick with the, with the, uh, the number three. But uh, let's read Jude. Uh, we'll pick up on verse 12, and we'll read until verse 16. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the, for who the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So if you have your notes, I'll give you the, the first, the top three blanks here. What we're going to look at in verses 12 and 13 is the apostates oppose the character of Christ. The apostates oppose the character of Christ. The second point in verses 14 and 15 is that we're going to look at Christ's second coming. Christ's second coming. And the third thing is the sins of the mouth. Verse 16. <clears throat> the sins of the mouth. All right, so let's, let's hang out in verses 12 and 13 for a little bit. And even as I wrap up, we're going to go back to this point. So I'm going to leave you hanging for a little bit. But let's start off. The first thing that, that Jude does is he talks about how the apostates oppose the character of Christ. And what he does is he cleverly uses five examples of nature, of things found in nature, 
to call out the character of these apostates. So the first thing that he says is they're hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. And what this phrase does is it, it depicts the unseen danger that these apostates pose to the church, to the believers. As Jude says, they come in unnoticed. They're wolves in sheep clothing, as Jesus alludes to in, in, in the Gospels. And he, he, he sort of uses this depiction of a reef that's hidden in shallow water, right? Reefs that are hidden in shallow water are dangerous to boats. It can cause, you know, destruction to the bottom of a boat if you run it over. And as I was working at Camp Spofford, I got my boating license, which I was like, how did I pass this exam? I, I, don't, I don't belong anywhere on this water as a driver. Um, <clears throat> and, and they tell you to be on guard, be on lookout for signs. You have to know the lake. You have to know the water because there are things that are hidden right under the surface. And in the middle of the lake, there's this really shallow area where this huge rock comes up. And if you're not careful, you can destroy the boat cause a shipwreck, right? So Jude's alluding to these apostates being like a reef that's hidden, right? And, and they cause danger if not carefully navigated through or around, right? They tear into unsuspecting people with their lies and their wickedness. And he uses this term, they're at your love feast. And I was like, well, well what is that? And throughout the Bible in the early church, we know that the church met together for a couple reasons. They were instructed to meet and gather for the purpose of mutual instruction, hearing God's word together, encouragement, even confrontation of sin. They met to care for one another. In Acts chapter 2, towards the end of it, it says believers gather on the Lord's day to worship, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to hear the word, to partake in the Lord's supper. And then it says that they share a meal. Right? And I sort of think of that as like an ancient sort of potluck dinner. Right after church, they'd be together, they'd gather for some fellowship, have a meal. So he's saying these apostates have the audacity to come to their love feast, to come to the meal that they're having, and they feast without fear. They don't care about other people. They don't care about the damage they do to other people. It says that they're shepherds who feed themselves. They shepherd no one but themselves. They serve themselves with their self-interest, their self-gratification, <clears throat> their pride, and they don't care about you. They don't care about anybody else other than themselves. The second thing that Jude now alludes these apostates to is he calls them their waterless clouds swept along by the winds. And if you remember where the area, you know, where the Bible takes place, it's in the Middle East, right? Israel's in that area where there's a lot of wilderness, there's a lot of desert, right? So really, when you see a cloud in the distance, right, and your thought is, well, maybe there's a promise of rain coming, or maybe there's an anticipation of some relief from the sun, like maybe it'll block the sun and I'll, I'll get some shade for a little bit here. So again, he's saying these are like clouds that have no water, right? They arrive with the promise and the anticipation, the hope for relief or rain, but they ultimately fail to deliver. Apostate preachers, they promise spiritual blessings, they promise spiritual refreshment in God, but they ultimately don't deliver and fail on that promise. And even in 2 Peter, as I mentioned, 2 Peter and Jude sort of go hand to hand. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter alludes to these apostates as this, as waterless springs and mist driven by storm. So again, it's this whole idea of you're going to a well to satisfy and to quench your thirst and, and you're hoping for some relief and then you get there and the well's dry, right? It's that disappointment that, and really the uselessness of a dried up well and a, and a cloud that has no water in it. So likewise, he's saying these apostates, they promise a spiritual water or spiritual sort of quenching of your thirst for your soul, but they actually give you nothing. They're useless. 
The next metaphor he says is he calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now autumn's the season right before, or I should say autumn's the, the last harvest, the last season that farmers can harvest any sort of food for the winter. And depending on if you have a good or bad harvest, that sort of predicts your future. Like if you have a bad harvest, you might be in trouble for the winter months because nothing will be growing. If you have a good harvest, then you have some hope for surviving and getting through the winter on a full belly and not being hungry. So again, he's saying that these are like fruitless trees in autumn. When you get there, there's no fruit. And he actually calls them twice dead. And he says they're twice dead because they're dead one time because they have no fruit. And then he says they're uprooted. So they're dead at the very core. They're plucked out of the ground. They're uprooted from the ground. And they're disconnected from the life-giving source of the water, of the roots, of the soils. So they're twice dead. What he's saying is they have no fruit. They, they, oh, if you follow apostasy, if you follow these apostates, there's disappointment. And there could be death. The next analogy he uses, he says, they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Now, throughout the Bible, the Bible often uses sea or the wild waves as a symbol or a metaphor for those who don't know God, right? Those who are deemed like, worldly instead of godly. And this phrase of casting up the, the foam of their own shame, I just think of, a, of an ocean crashing on the shore of a beach, right? Uh, or I should say a wave crashing on the, on the shore, and you see the foam that it brings up, and it brings everything to the surface with that foam. And in the same way Jude's saying, their disgraceful attitudes, their actions will eventually froth up and will display themselves in all their form of heresy, deception, immorality, irreverence, and insubordination to God. So they're wild, sea, wild ways of the sea. And the very last nature metaphor that Jude uses, and he's calling out these apostates' character, he calls them wandering stars, for whom all the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And this is really a depiction of a shooting star, right? A shooting star that flashes across the sky in an uncontrolled moment of brilliance, of, of bright light, and then what? It disappears forever into utter darkness. And once again, our second summer at Camp Spofford, Stephanie and I, and I'll never forget this because it w I missed out on the most memorable thing of my life, or one of the most memorable things, but um, we got permission from the higher-ups at, at, at camp to wake up all the staff members at like 3 o'clock in the morning to watch a, a predicted meteor shower. And this meteor shower is supposed to be like the best thing in the world. Like you'll see like hundreds of just falling stars or shooting stars. So we get to the beach, we're on the beach, and we're looking at the night sky, which again is beautiful because there's not a lot of light pollution. We can see all the stars. And we're like just staring at the sky, 15 minutes, nothing's happening. 20 minutes, nothing, not a, not a shooting star. And in a moment of weakness, I close my eyes. I go like this, I go, and in that one second, through my eyelids that are closed, blocking my eyes, I see the brightest light of my life through my eyelids, right? And all of a sudden I hear, oh my gosh, and I'm like, what, what, what happened? And I, like, I open my eyes, I missed it, right? In a, in a quick moment, the most beautiful, and I can't, you have to ask Stephanie, I'm assuming it's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? One of the most, or out of this world, I should say, right? I missed it. In one moment, it's there. The next, it's gone forever. So again, he's saying these apostates, they often appear for a short time, right? They promise an enduring spiritual light and spiritual direction, but they deliver nothing but erratic, aimless, worthless flash of light that, again, is gone forever. It says the gloom of all utter darkness has been reserved forever. So looking at these analogies, right, he calls them hidden reefs, 
to depict the hidden danger that these apostates pose. He calls them waterless clouds on their failure to deliver on their promises. They're fruitless trees because all they lead is disappointment and disconnection to God. They're wild ways because they belong to the world. They're worldly. They're full of heresy, deception, immorality, and pride. And they're wandering stars. They're nothing but a worthless flash of light that disappears into darkness forever. So for the sake of time, I'm going to move on, and we're going to go back to this at the end, sort of at some applications here. But apostates oppose the character of Christ. That, that is the character of the apostates, what Jude just told us. Let's read the, the next couple of verses here, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And what is he talking about? He's, uh, Enoch is, is perhaps he's alluding to Christ's second coming. That's the second main point. So again, we have this guy, Enoch, right? Jude quotes from him, and, and my question is, well, who is this guy? And if you read the Bible, there's really not a whole lot of verses on Enoch. He's, he's, uh, he's named three times throughout the Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 11, and right here in Jude. Enoch is the seventh in the lineage from Adam. So Enoch lived pre-flood, right? Right before the flood, Genesis 5, it talks about the genealogies of this person fathered this person, fathered this person who fathered this person. And then chapter 6 is the flood. He lived until age 365, and, and at 65, when he was 65, he fathered Methuselah, and that might sound familiar, because if you like Bible trivia, Methuselah is the oldest person recorded in the Bible. Uh, but Enoch also had other sons and daughters, and at age 365, it says that God took him. God took him. He didn't experience death. He didn't die. Just like the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings, God took him. We read also that he walked with God, and this phrase was also attributed to Noah as well, that Noah walked with God in Genesis chapter 6. And what we can know by this is that Enoch shared a close, intimate relationship with God. He's found in the Heroes of Faith verse, verses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what do we know about Enoch? Not much other than he was a really good person in, in terms of having an intimate relationship with God, being a godly person, living a godly life, in a time of ungodliness and wickedness. So now Jude alludes that, that Enoch prophesied while he was here on earth. And this reminds me, if you go back, if you want to know more about Enoch, uh, I think Dave Barry actually preached back in October, a few months ago, a sermon all about Enoch. So if you're interested in him, you can check that out on our website. But this leads to this question, well, who is this and, and what did he prophesy? And it's interesting because this prophecy is not found anywhere in the Bible. It's not found in the Old Testament but rather it's taken from the book of 1st Enoch, right? It, it, this is a book that, that was part of the Jewish people's written history and their tradition, its stories. It's not part of the biblical canon, right? Which begs to this question of, was it acceptable for Jude to use something that the Holy Spirit did not inspire, right, for the canon, for our Bible that the Holy Spirit has inspired? And I think, you know, it's a quick little yes, but we have to look into it a little bit. There's sort of a twofold yes. Yes, Jude can use it. He's allowed to use and quote from the book of 1 Enoch because we know that Jude's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit, if God did not want Jude to not use this prophecy, it wouldn't be in the Bible. 
right? That's sort of the, the simple, like, all right, there we go. Um, but also, the information that Jude uses, it's true in its affirmation, and it points to spiritual truths, which leads to the second point that even the Apostle Paul did the same thing. He used quotes from non-biblical, non-Christian people, uh, all for the sake of making a legitimate spiritual point. In Titus and Acts, he quotes from an ancient Greek poet and native of Crete named Epimendus. In 1 Corinthians, he also quotes from uh, something called Menadir's Comedy. It's a play. So again, through Enoch's prophecy, Jude's readers are reminded about three spiritual truths, right, that, that, that scripture backs up in, in itself, in truth, regarding God's final judgment and, the, and Christ's second coming. And the, first, the three things are this, that number one, the Lord will come. Jesus will come. And this truth was often attacked by false teachers. They said, well, you know, Jesus was here and he's gone, so you can just live your own life, do, what, do whatever you want. There's no need to worry about him coming back. He, you're, you're good. Right? The second thing we learn from this little prophecy is that he will not come back alone. Enoch says 10,000 of his holy ones, angels who serve as God's executioners when Christ returns. If you read the book of Revelation too, you see that the angels are, are wrestling and fighting against demons in, in the army of Satan as well. So he doesn't come back alone. And the third thing is he will come back to execute judgment, right? Christ is going to return with a purpose, and that purpose is to carry out judgment for all those who are not in Christ, for all those who have rejected God. And if you look in verse 15, this word keeps appearing over and over and over again, this word ungodly, right? God's going to come to convict all the ungodly, including these apostates that Jude's talking about. Throughout verse 15, this word is used four times. Right, he says to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly, one, of all their deeds, of ungodliness, two, that they've committed in such an ungodly way, three, and of all the harsh things that ungodly, four, sinners have spoken against him. And when you read the Bible, when you read one verse and you see this word over and over and over again, it's important to just stop and look at it. Stop and just meditate on it a little bit. And this word ungodly, when you translate it to Greek and then you try to find a word that back in English, that, that is most fitting for it, there's this word that comes up, impis, and it means not showing respect or not showing reverence, especially for a god, so for someone in authority. So these apostates are called ungodly, which identifies their basic sinful attitude. It defines who they are. They refuse to have reverence, fear for God. Their punishment comes, why? Because of their ungodly actions, and their ungodly speech. If you read verse 15, both their works and their words are going to portray them, or sorry, both their words and their works are going to portray, right, the wickedness that's in their hearts. And Enoch foretold that their sin will one day be exposed by the perfect judge who will render them guilty for their spiritual crimes. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, well, what exactly are their spiritual crimes? And, and Jude lists some of them in verse 16. He lists the sins of their mouths, sins of the mouths, Number three, he says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. All right, if we take each of these words and just look at them really quickly, right, grumblers, this is the only time this word occurs in the New Testament because it's also used in the Old Testament when it was used to describe Israel's murmurs or Israel's grumbling against God. And if you were here last week, we read a little bit of that section, and God says that he calls Israel a wicked generation because of their murmuring, their grumbling, their complaints to God. 
And because of that, they get punished. They're, they're forced to, to wander the wilderness for 40 years. He also calls a malcontent or complaining about God's holy purpose and plan. It's this constant dissatisfaction or discontentment with God, just a constant over and over and over again. He says they follow their own sinful desires. And that means they want to be their own God, right? They, they don't care about what other people or what God says. Or they don't care about his truth. They care about their own sinful desires. There's no submission to God. They're their own God. He calls them loudmouth boasters, which doesn't mean that they literally speak very loudly, right? It's not a literal word like that. But what it means is they speak arrogantly. They speak pridefully. They, they puff themselves up, right, with, with their arrogance, with their pride. And then he says they show favoritism to gain advantage. They cleverly manipulate people and use people for their own selfish gain. Right? Even Jesus in Matthew 15, he tells his disciples, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. So again, it's, the, it's the, what you are feeling or what you feel in the inside, your heart, right? What you say is your outward expression of, of what you feel inwardly. That's the connection Jesus is making there. And the apostate's heart condition is clearly seen by the way they treat and the way they talk to other people. They use their tongue to falsely and cleverly, you know, give praise to God and, and win people over to them. And with that same tongue, they curse and manipulate others around them. And that alludes to even what James wrote in James chapter 3. With the same mouth, we can praise God. And with our same mouth, we curse somebody all within the span of the same hour, the same minute. So again, as I was going through this, it's important to just look at really, again, this is probably not your typical Sunday morning. Hey, this, what an encouraging message here, right? But we're looking at Jude saying, here's the bad news for those who are not in Christ. And they are going to face punishment. They are going to face God's judgment. But if we're in Christ, and, and it sort of gets to the last end, and if you come back next week, right, we're going to read through that together, right? It's a call to burst, persevere, an encouragement for their church to keep fighting for their faith. Now, as I, as I sort of close a little bit or, or, or sort of step away from the text, I want to just go through three applications or three things we can take uh, from today's message. And the first is that apostates fail where Christ doesn't. Apostates fail while Christ never does. Right? Jude reminds us that even today, these false teachers, they fail to deliver on their word. Jesus, on the other hand, he always follows through on his promises. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been going through the I am statement at youth group, uh, the seven I am statements that Jesus said while he was on earth in, in John's gospel with the youth group. And uh, it's, it's funny how that's fresh in my mind. And as I'm reading of all these different nature metaphors that Jude uses to uh, describe apostates, they almost line up as the mirror opposite of what Jesus said. So let's just work through that together real quick. Just, just bear with me. Go back to the first point here, right? Jude calls these apostates hidden reefs. He calls them shepherds who feed themselves. Whereas, what do we know about Jesus? Jesus said what? I am the good shepherd. My sheep, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Right? He's, he's, a, he's a shepherd who feeds, who takes care of his sheep. Who sa he says, I will sacrifice, I will die for my sheep. Right? He's a good shepherd. As Jude calls them waterless clouds, right? something that won't satisfy something that, that comes with the anticipation of satisfaction, but there's nothing there, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come to me for eternal satisfaction. I can fill the void in your heart. I can fill, fill the spiritual longing and desire you have. I'm the bread of life. Jude calls them fruitless trees, which again, they're not alive. They have no fruit. They're not connected to any source of life, 
They're on their own. And that metaphor is Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, abide in me and I in you and you will produce fruit. He says, apart from me, you will not have fruit. You'll be dead. So we see here, Jesus is claiming to be the vine, the, the source of truth, right? As, as Christians, we produce fruit not on our own power, right? Not on ourselves, but it's who we're connected to, the vine being Jesus, our source of life. Jude calls them wild waves, right? They're, they're worldly. They're swept up in the world. They care only about themselves, their own way, their own truth. Well, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jude refers to them as a wandering star, which appears in a moment of brilliance really quickly and then fizzles away forever. And Jesus says what? I am the light of the world. He says, follow me. I am that Messiah. I am the, the, the coming of the Messiah that you're, you're celebrating and you're, you're longing for. That's me. Follow me. I will be your guide. Right? Apostates fail where Christ never does. And the second takeaway we can take from these verses is that, and this sort of echoes last week, but it's important, that sinners face eternal judgment, right? Sin gets punished. Jude's reminder from Enoch's prophecy is that it's bad news for those who are outside Christ, but it's also good news to us who are in Christ. We've received mercy. We've received grace. And God's word is clear. The end's already written, right? We, we, we can't be surprised by, by things, or, or God's not surprised by things either. God knows. We know in Christ's first ascension from heaven to earth, he came as the sacrificial lamb. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came as the man of sorrows. He came to die on the cross, to be crucified. Right? But on Christ's next return, his second coming, it'll be triumphant and glorious and victorious. He's coming back not as the lamb, but as the lion of Judah. He's coming and he's claiming his throne on which every knee will bow and tongue confess on heaven and on earth that he is Lord. And that's from Philippians chapter 2. And there might be some of you here today who are like, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm in Christ, right? Or, or maybe I just, I want to live my own life for now, and I'll put Jesus on the back burner, and I'll, I'll come back to him in a little bit. The sad truth is there's, there's no time to wait. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed to live till we're 80 or 90 years old, and then say, you know what, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you, God, and I'll, I'll make you the Lord of my life. What you're really saying is, God, I'm going to put you here, and you're going to be second to me, right? It's all about me. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to be my own God. And then when I need you, I'll, I'll come back and then I'll put you here, right, when, when I'm ready, when, when, I, when I don't want to do it anymore, right? And that, that's, that's idolatry. That's pride. That, that's like the apostates. They're, they're saying, you know what, God? I reject your truth. I don't care about it. I'm going to be the God of my own life, right? There's this urge, repent from your sins, right? Surrender your life to Christ. Make him your Lord and Savior of your life. There's no time to wait. Don't wait. And the last thing that we can find as an encouragement as, as Christians here this morning, we should be acting godly in an ungodly world. Act godly in an ungodly world. If you have your Bibles in front of you, why don't you turn to the book of James. Turn over to James chapter 1. Again, James is the brother, the full brother of Jude. They're both the half-brothers of Jesus. And in James chapter 1, verses 19 to the end of the chapter, he talks about being doers of the word, not just hearers. So let's just read these verses together. James chapter 1, we'll, verse on, uh, we'll start on verse 19. Sorry, we'll, we'll start on verse 22. James 1, 22. 
But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looked intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looked at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed for his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I just love that bottom section, right? It really calls out the selfishness versus the selflessness of Christians. But also he's making this point in the first half that we read. It's not enough to just know the word. It's not enough to just sit here on Sunday mornings and say, wow, what a, what a great sermon. I'm going to go back and just live my life the way I want, right? It's not enough to just hear the words of Jesus. We actually have to do them. James says, don't be a hearer only, be a doer of the word. And later in James, in his book, he tells us that faith without works is dead. And he, he, he sort of attributes the story of saying, you see a brother who's cold or, or someone who's cold outside and, and what you say is, as you pass by, you're like, well, stay warm, brother. I'll, I'll pray for you, right? And then you walk away. James is saying that, that's worthless. What, you're, just, you're just telling them something. You're not doing something, right? Faith should cause us to act. It should cause us to act like Jesus, right? Faith without works is dead. Apostates, going back to Jude here, apostates are really good at talking, you know, talking the talk, saying things. But if you look deeper, eventually their lives Sin's going to come up, as, James, as Jude says, it's going to froth up as a wave crashes and the foam comes up from the waves, right? Their lives are full of sin. They're slaves to their desires. They're slaves to sin, and we talked about that last week. So as Christians, we need to be preaching the gospel, but also living the gospel. Jude tells us throughout his book, there's about 18 characteristics that define an apostate's heart. I'm just going to spitball these and fire them out. I encourage you, just read the book, come up with your own list, and as Christians, we should check our heart against these lists. So here's the list that, that define an apostate's heart from Jude. They're ungodly, they're morally perverted, they deny Christ, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the holy angels, they're dreamers, they're ignorant, they're self-destructive, they're grumblers, they're malcontents, they're self-seeking, they're arrogant speaking, they show favoritism, they're scoffers, they cause division, they're worldly, and they're devoid or lack, don't have the Holy Spirit. And these are things that we as Christians, as Christ followers, should not be. And my, my encouragement, my hope, and my prayer this week is that we can use this list, right, to check our hearts, to check our lives. Right? Are, you, are you living a life that's pleasing to God? And if you're not, repent, ask for forgiveness. Hebrews tells us that we can draw confidently to the throne of grace and receive forgiveness and mercies when we repent from our sins, right? God's not just waiting for us to, to come to him and say, God, we messed up, and then he's like, boom, you're dead. I'm, I'm zapping, I'm smiting you. No, there's grace and forgiveness if we repent from our sins. So again, my encouragement, are you living a life that's pleasing to God? Just take this week and, and just sort of check your heart against this list. Come up with your own list as you read through Jude. And I want to encourage you, come back next week. We're going to be finishing the book of Jude, and I'm hope, Lord willing, and I'm excited as we finish through this series. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the love you've given us. 
Jesus, we know from your word that we are ungodly, that we by nature are your enemy, that we are belonging to this world, that we've gone astray. It's only by your love and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness that we can appear before the throne of grace and have a relationship with our creator, a relationship with God, a personal, intimate relationship. Lord, I just pray this morning, if anybody's heart is stirring, if they're, if they're just longing to repent from their sin, I, I pray, Lord, that you lead them to repentance. I pray that you convict them of their sins, Lord, and you, and you give them the Holy Spirit to guide them in your truth. I pray, Lord, that as we live in this, in this ungodly world, that we can be agents of your truth. And know that your truth is under attack. We have to fight for your truth, to not back down, to not be shy. Jesus, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, the good news that there's life, there's forgiveness, there's love for those who repent from their sins. It's only by your grace, Lord, that we are alive today. I pray that we continue to draw near to you and learn to love you and to love others more and more each day. In your holy, perfect, precious, powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.